Hello, and welcome to the January 2018 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Stephanie Duchin. This month's episode features Neil Baer, an HMS-trained pediatrician and award-winning television writer and producer. Baer started writing for ER when he was still a medical student, and over the years, he has continued to use TV to help shape public perceptions of medicine, illness, and health disparities. Stay tuned to hear about Bear's unconventional career path and how medical school inadvertently prepared him to be an executive producer. Neil, welcome. Hi, how are you? Great to have you here today. Thanks. So you have had an unusual career path, both in medicine and in media production. When did you start thinking about intersections between medicine, media, narrative? I grew up in a household with a father who was a surgeon, and I used to go with him uh, when he made rounds because that was literally pretty much the only time I could see him. And so I would conjure up stories when I was a little boy about what he was doing upstairs in those ORs and seeing patients on rounds, whatever that meant. Mm -hmm. And so I was fascinated by medicine, you know, from a very early age. And for whatever, you know, for a number of reasons, I just didn't pursue it until uh, after graduate school at Harvard, where I was a graduate student in sociology. And I thought, well, perhaps I might want to be a doctor someday. Mm -hmm. I've never been really good at making like firm decisions. I just like to (laughs) do a lot of different things. And so I I went to the University of Southern California and took biology, chemistry, organic, and physics, just in case, (laughs) and uh, applied to medical school and deferred twice here at Harvard and then went, But uh, which was a great thing. But I was also always interested in storytelling uh, from a young age. And so I was able to combine the two. I think one of the reasons I went to medical school was I started uh, making documentary films when I was a graduate student at Harvard, and um, I really found that I wasn't going to be a sociologist, that that really wasn't my calling. So I made uh, documentary films. I I wheedled my way into a a visual and environmental studies uh, department documentary filmmaking course, and it changed my life. Mm. And I made a film over one year about people, uh, about a diner in Maine uh, uh, that served as a gathering spot for a community. And then I made, a, in the second year, another course, uh, People Who Work All Night. And I sold them both to PBS, and that really launched my television career because mm-hmm. I had never even thought about making documentary films. And I found out this guy was going to be teaching at, at Harvard, mm-hmm. and I talked him to letting a graduate student take the course. He said I couldn't take it, but then he <laughs> said, okay. And you never know where your life will go. And so I I started film school in Los Angeles, and I was really drawn to medical stories, and I didn't realize that at first. I optioned for a very, very small amount of money a story from The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. And that was the first project I did where I wrote an adaptation of a story called The Lost Mariner about a man with Korsakov syndrome. And I ended up meeting Oliver and becoming friends with him, which was really a trip. What's Korsakoff um, syndrome? Korsakoff syndrome is um, a disease that's common, what well, we should say not uncommon, in people with severe alcoholism, where um, it, it affects a part of the brain where you can't form 
uh, memories. And so they literally live in a constant state of flux. They can remember things about their past, mm -hmm. though sometimes that can be erased too. And so they start having to what we call confabulate or make up, seeing clues around them of where they are, whom they're talking to. So in this very moving story that Oliver wrote, um, this man has Korsakovs. He was a severe alcoholic and he finally recognizes his brother because it is his brother, though he thinks he's undergone some terrible um, uh, disease because he looks so old because mm. he remembers him only as a, a young man. So I wrote an adaptation of that that was going to star John Lithgow and uh, for Paramount it never got made like many movies. Um, and then I wrote and directed an ABC after school special about sexually transmitted infections. So uh, exciting that was we were the first um, show ever to say discharge from the penis. So, you know, and that was, it was groundbreaking as ABC, you know, daytime. Uh, and that was before I went to medical school. So and then I did an episode of China Beach uh, where Dana Delaney's character resuscitates a man who's brain dead. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, there's a theme running through my work of medical ethical stories. And I grew up with medicine. Maybe I should consider going to medical school if this job doesn't you know, pan out. And then, <laughs> then my son was born. And I thought, well, you know, this is my last opportunity. I better try it in case Hollywood doesn't work. So I came to Harvard and I loved it. I loved the new pathways. I loved the storytelling approach and the tutorials and made really close friends. My, my closest friend from medical school, I met him the first day was David Foster. And he wanted to make documentaries. We made one together while we were in medical school. And then um, he worked, uh, with me on SVU, which I ended up mm -hmm. writing, and he wrote an episode, and he did some other things and ended up as the writer-producer of the show House. So HMS has had this huge influence on the seminal um, medical series of the last thir uh, tw 25 years of ER and, and, and House because um, I came from HMS <laughs> and so did David. And when, so you, when you were a student here, did you have like a reputation for being the Hollywood guy who was mood lighting in medical school or was everybody just so extraordinary that they all had super hobbies and that happened to be yours? Well, there were interesting, certainly really interesting students, you know, outside the, you know, supposed norm of being a bio major. Um, you know, we had a, 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 a wonderful guy who was, who, was a dan who was a ballet dancer, who's a physician, who's a family medicine physician now, and we had a journalist, and we had various really interesting people, um, and that's always the case every year at, at HMS. Um, there's a real uh, mix of, of interests. Um, so I had done, you know, people knew that I had done some TV, but it wasn't until I was a fourth year that I was sent the script that Michael Crichton had written when he was a medical student mm -hmm. at Harvard in 1969, around that time, mm -hmm. he wrote ER. Famously. And Steven Spielberg optioned it to make it as a film and then literally forgot about it. And it, <laughs> it lay dormant in a trunk for 20 some odd years. Wow. And 25 years later, the script was sent to me in 1994 when I was a fourth year medical student by John Wells, my childhood friend who's a director producer now because he was the going to be what's called the showrunner of ER. And he said, what do you think of it? And I said, oh, it's like my life, only 
it's outdated. We don't use <laughs> chloramphenicol and we don't use glass IV bottles, but it really captures what it's like to be a medical student or an intern, a resident, an attending, um, you know, climbing the ladder, all of the problems. It was uh, pulling the curtain back from, you know, things that never had really been shown on television. Mm. And I said, I'd love to do it. And he said, well, give me um, your thoughts and give me notes to update it. Because um, Michael hadn't done medicine in 25 years. Sure. Um, During your copious spare time in medical school. In medical school. So I did it. And um, I uh, went out to Hollywood, back to L.A., uh, it had been four years to this was during school or after during during yeah. school during a fourth being a fourth year you I accrued you know I think you can take two months off of your you know during your whole time and so I did and I loved it and I thought mm, how am I going to work this out so Harvard was very flexible which was great and and I I ended up staying on the show as a writer mm-hmm. so um and I finished medical school a year behind my class, but you know, a big portion of my class finished a year behind anyway because they do <laughs> research and various other things. And I went to, I did my ambulatory medicine rotation in Los Angeles every Saturday for two years. <laughs> so it's like, so some sacrifices, but it was worth it. How um, long does that normally take? Two months. Yeah. It did back then when we did it, when we did it here. So. Um, I, and then I came back here for my sub I, and you know another sort of really funny thing is that my my um, attending was Pam Hart's band, and she ended up writing a book with her husband Jerry Groupman about um, your medical mind. Jerome and Groupman, yeah. Jer- Jerome Groupman, and we optioned it at CBS, and we did a pilot based on my attending's book. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you always should be really, you know. Being well connected helps too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it was really, it was really terrific um, to have worked with with uh, them in those capacities. And um, so I, I finished medical school, and then I did my internship over like five years again during hiatuses and on weekends and cobbling it together. And I, I remember thinking, this is really crazy but it was worth I mean I thought I've gone this far I have to do it so I, yeah. it's been great because it informs all the work I do all the the work that I did at HMS and and when I was training to be a pediatrician has informed not only ER and SVU particularly but but uh, also the work I do today and while you were at HMS you had a scholarship right that was specifically for contributing to the understanding of science through the media. Right. So you were thinking about that already at school and before school. Right. And I think another another um, transformative element for me was getting a AAAS mass media fellowship. Mm. And I was sent to ABC News, uh, and that was before medical school. And there were a couple of medical students there in science. Most, most of the uh, students were graduate students in the sciences, but they took sociology graduate students as well, and I really wanted to do that after I'd made my films. And so I worked with a science reporter, and that really kind of solidified my decision to go to medical school, because I just thought, this is like really a path of great interest to me, and I can combine medicine and maybe storytelling in some way. I didn't know exactly how, so medical students can, can do that still, and it's really, you know, you're sent to 
NPR and networks and science magazines mm-hmm. and things like that. Now, you have said in other spaces that being at medical school helped you to really learn how to draw out patient stories and also that it helped you to understand your own story. Can you tell me more about that? Well, I think being a really good physician requires one to be a a good storyteller and a detective. You have to have a rapport with the patient. If your back is turned to to the patient and you're asking questions from an algorithm and typing them into your computer, Mm. it's not the best feeling uh, that the patient will get from that. And they may not want to confide in you and tell you things that will take you down the right path to make a diagnosis. So there's there's a real requirement uh, for empathy, but you also have to be a detective because you have to keep in mind like, you know, what the symptomatology is and what clues you're getting. And you're sort of plucking those clues and putting them together and sorting them out into different places like is this, you know, trauma? Is this infectious? Is this tumor? Is this um, metabolic? And you're putting together, you know, your, your story for this patient. But in order to get a full story, you need to draw out the patient uh, lest they not tell you about drugs, alcohol, sex, and other larcenous things they do that <laughs> might, might have some impact on the diagnosis and take you down the wrong path. So I think that being a good physician requires you to be a really good storyteller and, of course, a really good listener of, of that story. And um, I think that's what's really powerful about the, the teaching at Harvard, that you're not just lectured to Mm -hmm. but at all now I mean lectures are really like you watch them at night and and uh, it's really an interactive approach that um, integrates physiology pathophysiology the social determinants of health psychopharmacology pharmacology um, uh, environmental factors that's the story really of of the impact of of the environment on someone's health. It's not just genetically determined, it's not just environmentally determined, it's both. And as a physician, you have to draw on so much information, so you have to be able to be a really good storyteller to organize it. And then you have to convey it to other physicians and, and, and nurses and healthcare providers as well. So you have to be a storyteller on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. It's very important a lot to keep in your head at once. That's why I think I was a good showrunner on ER and SVU because I always used to say it was like, you know, medicine, like you have like 14 patients on the ward while you have like five shows and different facets of development. You have a couple, one that you're working on in the room, one that you're writing the outline for, one that you're writing the script for, one that you're shooting and you're prepping for, one that you're editing, and one that you're in post on. So you have to like, those are all your patients. All your, all your episodes are patients. And so you kind of have them all in your head. So I think, I think um, HMS was really good training for being a showrunner. In, in Hollywood, seriously, I'm sure I mean, that was the intention. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's really good training for any kind of work one would do. And you know, there are a number of students who don't do traditional medical uh, careers now, and that's always been the case at at HMS. Mm. 
When it comes to Hollywood movies and TV, you hear sometimes about how narrative is paramount, right? The story has to come first. The drama is the main important point, and that accuracy is secondary or below secondary. So do you see those things as being in conflict? And if so, how do you navigate them? No, I don't see accuracy and storytelling as being uh, antithetical at all. I think that people are really good detectors of what's true or not. And I think that was one of the reasons why ER was a hit right off the bat, because there's a fair similitude to it that was different from any medical show in the past. Um, I was the first, technically the first medical student writer in Hollywood, mm -hmm. but also the first doctor writer, along with Lance Gentile, who was an emergency physician. Because in the past, all medical series, Dr. Kildare, uh, Marcus Welby, St. Elsewhere, they all had doctors involved, but after the scripts were written, and they would sprinkle the medicine, you know, like powdered sugar on top. <laughs> so it was really more like um, the shows, if you watch them now, are very, very personal, patient heavy, but they don't really get into the medicine and the bioethics mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. And so what John Wells wanted when he was hiring people to write ER was he wanted this verisimilitude, like you're really in there. And I had not only been there, but I was still in it. Mm -hmm. So I was able to recount um, what had, was happening to me and how it felt. And so I could really like channel all of my fears, anxieties, and, and joys through Noah Wiley's character because he <laughs> played the medical student. I was a medical student. He was a third year when we started the show, and I was a fourth year. So I was a little ahead of him. <laughs> then he passed me. He was like, you know, you know surgery resident and because uh, um, I was there I was on the show for seven years the first seven years so accuracy I think is really important and I learned how important it really is when we did a study uh, on HPV and cervical cancer in 2000 and I worked with the Kaiser Family Foundation and Princeton Survey Research and we did an actual study the first study of its kind that looked at the impact of our storytelling on the audience. Mm. So I took a, sto a story that we were doing with Juliana Margulies' character where mm -hmm. she uh, diagnoses a young woman with cervical cancer and she'd been going to sex parties. And this was actually inspired by an article I read about syphilis and parties that young people were having in, I believe it was North Carolina. I read about it and I was always drawing from things I was reading or my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I read about this and I thought, let's do this as an experiment to really see what our impact is. Um, so we did the show and we surveyed a random uh, sample of viewers, over a thousand viewers before the show aired. And the experimental treatment per se was the show itself. <laughs> and then we resurveyed a random sample of viewers afterwards and we were dumbstruck by the results, which were, you know, a very small number of people knew that HPV caused cervical cancer. Now, this was 2000 before Gardasil, the vaccine, came right. out. And after the show aired, it was almost, I believe, something like six times. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was huge. It was mm -hmm. like 9% up to like, you know, over 50%. So mm -hmm. it was just, we had 40 million viewers. Mm -hmm. So this was huge. And so it really dawned on me. It, it already concerned me that you know, we had to be accurate because people learned about health issues from what they saw on TV. Now we have the internet and that's more challenging because 
there's so much out there that's not true. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was incumbent on us to be accurate because people, you know, I've had arguments with people, for instance, I remember many years ago on Grey's Anatomy that, you know, I'll hear this this notion that it's really entertainment and that's our job. Right. And I just think that that's wrong. I think it's it's our job is to tell really good stories and we have to be responsible for the stories that we tell. And so we started uh, an outreach program, per se, called Hollywood Health and Society, and we provided free, accurate information to anybody in Hollywood who wanted it so that it wouldn't steer people in wrong directions. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I think standards and practices at the networks would just ask me, like I did a show about vaccinations, and, and I talk about measles outbreaks, and they said, you know, where are the data? And it's like, here they are. So they've, they've, they've wised up, too, in the sense that they ask for the data, and it's very easy to give them the data. And then I started, I moved to UCLA. For, I was at USC in global health, and now I, I am an adjunct professor at UCLA, and, I'm, and I teach there. Um, and we have a, I started a center called the Global Media Center for Social Impact, and we give people information on any health issue, but we've expanded it from what we did at USC where we're looking at what we call the social determinants of health because it is important, obviously, to give accurate information about any disease or disease process, but we want also writers to think about the causes of disease exposure to toxins, climate change, immigration issues, LGBT issues, um, uh, uh, violence, um, access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So these are all um, social determinants of what one's health is, and we think it's important to be able to write about that as well. And so we also uh, take writers on what we call story tours, where we put them on a bus and take them to places in Los Angeles they've never been where they see where people live next to rendering factories and suffer from um, attendant uh, illnesses, you know, and asthma and things that, you know, are caused by exposure so that Mm -hmm. we really want them to see uh, or have taken them to South Central LA to clinics where people are given a brush, a bucket and some borax and shown how to clean mold. So we really, so that they can then, of course, Mm -hmm. tell those stories in their shows. Well, that's a perfect lead into my next question, which is how do you think about media and pop culture as a way to inform the national conversation on healthcare, on health disparities, public health, and you know, one of your specialties, LGBT disparities? Well, I think I've been really, really fortunate to have TV as my bully pulpit for all the things that I care about. You know, my mother was worked for ACLU for 45 years and she was arrested when I was a kid for picketing with the farm workers in Cesar Chavez in Denver where I grew up and so I was exposed to this this profound influence that she had on me about, you know, social justice and so I've tried to in my own shows write about those issues of fairness and justice and rights and so for me um uh, I never think of my shows as entertainment per se or education. I hope they educate. Uh, I hope someone not like learns facts per se, but that um, they're exposed to different perspectives and they can take the template of their own life or lives of people around them and assess and evaluate maybe ideas or attitudes that they have that might 
you know, be in conflict with other people's attitudes. And so, you know, I've done this in so many different shows. Like, you know, I did an episode on um, euthanasia. And as a writer, I can construct the show to really point to different perspectives. So I, I, I did a show where a mother was accused of murdering her young child. She did murder the child, but um, murder might be the wrong word. She, that she killed the child. The child had Tay-Sachs disease. So I was able to choose a genetic disorder that's incurable, mm-hmm. always fatal, at an early age, causes terrible, terrible um, uh, uh, effects in the child, pain and, and loss of all milestones. So there's no, there's no you know, hope. It's mm-hmm. hopeless. So then I was able to use my characters, Benson, Stabler, Finn, and Munch, to articulate different positions that they held given who these characters are. So Maloney's character, Stabler, has four or five, five children, so he said he wouldn't want his child to suffer. So he has a certain perspective, whereas Munch, Munch's character has no kids and is... is um, a devout Jew and says, no, I think it's always up to God to decide. And then Mariska's character is not sure. And Ice-T has another position of, um, you know, I think it's, you know, you know, should be, you know, a case by case basis kind of thing. Well, you can take your own experience or your own beliefs and bring that to the show and evaluate and measure and discuss it with whomever you're with. And that's always been my intent for the shows that I do to to spark conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I've been lucky to do it on, you know, such a wide range of health issues, you know, both on ER and SVU. We created the first ongoing character with HIV who lived, um, mm-hmm. uh, Gloria Rubin's character, Jeannie Boulay. And I just did a, a round table with Variety and it was stunning that only um, two other shows, both gay-oriented shows, Queer as Folk and Looking, had ongoing HIV-positive characters when it's still a major um, disease in the United States. And so, um, you know, I was, again, able to take my passions for, you know, telling stories about HIV prevention or guns and children or um, teen access to abortion. Can you believe that? I don't know that anybody would be able to do that right now on television because yeah. it's such a fractious time. But I was able to do all these shows on um, uh, on SVU, um, uh, the impact of soda on obesity. Mm-hmm. And so sodas are the number one contributor to childhood obesity. I'm so fascinated by what stories can do and how we can use stories to help people make possibly better decisions about their health and to reflect on really trenchant issues of our time. Do you have uh, favorite examples of characters or scenes or storylines that you have been involved in that have helped advance public understanding, compassion for LGBT people? Well, certainly the the show, um, the shows, all the shows we did with Gloria Rubin's character on ER, because that was a time... You know, when I was in medical school in 91, starting in 91, there was pretty much nothing we could do except try to treat the opportunistic infections. And then by 
95, 96, we could do a lot and save people's mm-hmm. lives. Complete, you know, mm-hmm. it was just a, a major turnaround and that we started Gloria's character's journey in 95 and tracked how it changed and we we followed her, her she in, she contracted HIV from her husband and I thought we didn't do the right thing by saying that her husband had acquired HIV by having sex with lots of women um, and I got a I got a lot of letters I remember from African-American women saying mm, you know this is really not the full story mm-hmm. it's po- you know part of the story but it was also a story about the down low so I used the actor Michael Beach in an episode of SVU and I said you know I want to redo this story will you play a character who's HIV positive but we say but you know we're clear that he's having sex with men but also is married and he mm-hmm. and his wife contracts HIV and so I, I felt that it was important to to tell the other side of the story and I was able to do that on SVU so I think that was important I know I'm pretty sure we did the first episode on a transgender child male to female who takes hormone blockers this Mm -hmm. is probably already about eight to ten years ago and now it's pretty standard to um, stave off puberty while the adolescent is deciding Mm -hmm. what he or she wants to do where they want to go with their transition or not Mm -hmm. and if you if you hold off puberty it makes the transition easier ultimately so we did that was the first story and I did stories about HIV deniers um, because there was you know a contingency of people and even some professors at Berkeley who said it was a nutritional deficit so we we took that on and there had been a tragic story in LA about a mother with HIV whose daughter came in and she was misdiagnosed because people weren't really even seeing pneumocystis pneumonia anymore and she died because the mother had refused to get treatment. Now, it's very rare to get a baby who's born with HIV because we can prevent it mm-hmm. uh, in childbirth. So I've done, I wrote an episode of ER where Laura Ennis's character comes out as a lesbian. Um, I made Ice-T's son gay on, on <laughs> SVU. The power. Um, uh, so it was like, yeah, you know, it's like, wow, you know. Um, so I was able to talk about, you know, uh, HIV looking at um, various reasons why men had unprotected sex. I mean, it was like, so it was really, for me, probably, you know, I came out four and a half years ago. So, you know, when I was in medical school and I graduated in 96, there were two men in my class who were out, fully out. Not including you? Not including me, no. So I think I used my um, uh, storytelling, my shows, to really explore lots of different elements of being gay before I came out. Wow. And now you're helping others at HMS in addition to your work in television because you have supported a scholarship here that will help students who are interested in reducing LGBT health disparities. Right. And support different people's perspectives. You can tell right. us more about that. So I wanted to do something to give back because HMS was so giving to me, both personally and professionally, opening doors for me to be a writer in television and also to you know, deal with my own homosexuality. So I uh, started the scholarship, and one of the profound things that happened to me a couple years ago was I saw the figures for HIV in America, and I thought, you know, now we have antiretrovirals, mm-hmm. things are pretty good. Well, 
that's not the case. 14% mm. of Americans with HIV don't know their status. It's not great, but it's not terrible. But what really shocked and appalled me was that 30% of people who are positive are fully treated in the US, meaning they get antiretrovirals and they have an undetectable viral load, hence they're healthy and they can't transmit the virus. Mm -hmm. So this is a profound statement of where we are in the United States. This is, these one numbers are worse of off. One third patients. One third. Yeah. Get Less the drugs. Than one third. Mm -hmm. Less, yeah, fewer than one third. So uh, this is uh, because of stigma, because of access. Uh, it's particularly bad in the South, where it can go as high as one out of two African American men uh, who have sex with men uh, uh, are approaching being positive. So, you know, we have to do something about that. And who better to do that than? medical students mm -hmm. who are passionate, driven, and compassionate, and you know, really want to fight the, these new battles. Mm -hmm. This is a battle we shouldn't be fighting. And you know, it's a battle not only in terms of HIV and AIDS, and you know, there are African-American men dying of AIDS in Jackson, Mississippi. There is a young man who actually, 41-year-old guy, uh, Michael Friedman, who went to Harvard, and he died of AIDS. He was a you know a renowned composer lyricist, and he just died of AIDS. So mm. how can this be? Well, there's still stigma, there's still fear, there's still uh, religious uh, upheaval about it, and there's still you know shame. So it's not just about HIV/AIDS, but it's about um, LGBTQ health. Um, we often think of uh, these people all as one, but they all have you know very different. Um, medical issues and, and right. susceptibilities. So we need to look at um, this and what better place to do this is at Harvard to look at, you know, they have high, people have, who are transgender have higher sexually transmitted infection rates and higher suicide rates and, and gay men have higher drug abuse rates and lesbians uh, often smoke and drink and so we need to <laughs> look at these things and be honest and clear and do research about it. And so Harvard is doing that and Harvard does have clerkships now, which is really incredibly important. When I was in medical school, only two people were out and uh, uh, now at least there are at least five of us. I'm sure there are more since, you know, 20 or so students came to a talk I gave last year, but that's a profound change in 20 years from 1996 to, to today. Uh, and it's really uh, gratifying and, and enlivening to me to, to see how much change there is. And so I wanted to help spark that commitment that HMS has to treating everyone and finding new ways to do it and better ways. Um, so I thought, you know, this would be a way of my giving back. Thank you. Uh, so let's maybe wrap up with a series of quick questions for I'll you. I'll be really quick. <laughs> Who has inspired you? At HMS? Anywhere. Well, Dan Fetterman inspired me. He passed away maybe about a month ago. He was a great storyteller. He was a dean of HMS. Dean of HMS and a very compassionate guy. But, you know, I just remember a great storyteller. And uh, uh, that moved me. Uh, and sort of, I guess, sent me down the road too of being a, being a, a writer slash 
doctor as well. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the first patient I saw pass away, I don't even remember her name, but I remember that she inspired me because it was just the first time I was in a room with someone who died. I remember the first patient I had who um, came in, he had orange socks, it was at the Beth Israel, <laughs> and he um, you know, was having trouble breathing, we got an echo of his heart, and he had you know, a almost encased heart you know, encased with cancer, and he was really young, and I just remember like everybody saying it's this this guy wouldn't make it. So I remember just those prof the profundity of these these teachers, your patients are your teachers, and I don't I'll never forget you know having to tell him, and you know it's like mm -hmm. you know those those things you don't forget. So it's not only the the faculty or your 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 student colleagues who inspire you, but it's it's the patients. And I bet you, if you asked all these HMS students, you know, the first person, first patient they have who who dies, or the first patient they had to give bad news to, they'll remember a lot of the details, like orange socks. Mm. Who are your favorite writers? It just keeps changing over time. I mean, if it's like long term, it would be like. Um, uh, like Dickens because he's like such a great you know <laughs> storyteller and it's melodramatic sometimes mm -hmm. and I you know a little melodrama melodrama isn't bad but I'm reading right now I'm reading Frank Bedart mm -hmm. who's a poet gay poet and his work is really passionate and compassionate he writes a lot about HIV AIDS I've, I've been reading a lot of AIDS memoirs so I read this writer who you know isn't really well known named Fenton Johnson who wrote a book called Geography of the Heart, which I love a lot, which is about uh, uh, the AIDS crisis and his his partner dying. Um, I, I've, I'm reading Paul Monette right now too, um, but I read a lot of fiction and I read a lot of nonfiction. I'm reading a HMS graduate's work called mm -hmm. The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee, <laughs> um, which is fantastic because I'm really interested in CRISPR and doing some work on that as a writer. Um, I, I know Atul Gawande because we were he was two years ahead of me so I read his work and I chat with him and and I'm just so amazed by the the volume of work that he puts out that's so well written um, and uh, you know I try to read widely and I read nonfiction but I, I still read fiction so I'm reading a French novel called The End of Eddie which is really interesting. Hmm. My favorite book, though, of the last several years is called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, and it just really floored me. It's, it's one of those books that changes one's life because it, 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 it helped me sort of ask questions about my own life, too. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the most important book I've read in the last several years for me. But, you know, I'm reading a lot of different kinds of books. Med medically oriented, but also fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how your experience in medicine has influenced your writing. Has your work on TV shows ever influenced your practice of medicine? Um, probably, I would say, I hope that it's made me a better listener because uh, I'm always like making Anthony Edwards' character, or Laura Innes' character, or Juliana, or Noah, George, or Eric, Sherry, 
that always to be better listeners. You know, you, mm-hmm. they were kind of the doctors who they were the idealized versions mm-hmm. of all the doctors we'd want to be. You know, in a way. And and uh, uh, though I don't practice really now, I teach um, students, but more in public health mm-hmm. than than um, in medical schools. But you know, that'll that'll change. So perhaps my last question would be, do you have advice for medical students, for medical schools, for doctors, on what they can do either to enhance their practice through storytelling or to address some of the disparities that you're trying to tackle? What I think is really fantastic about medical students is that they are going to talk to all sorts of people of all ages at some point in their training, no matter what they decide to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's really incumbent on us who are working with them or training them, designing curriculum, to not worry so much about cramming in every disease or every issue um, that is disease-oriented, but really thinking more about the social determinants of health mm-hmm. and how physicians in the making can deal with the patient before they come into the clinic. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean once they come into the clinic and they're 50 years old with metabolic disorder, they have hypertension, high cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes, it's almost too late Mm -hmm. because they've lived this life of, of, um, they've lived a life that's contributed in so many ways to this really problematic state that they're in. So how can we not just think that we're, we can't just wait for the patient to come in. We have to be um, advocates outside the clinic or the OR. Um, We have to be advocates in as many ways as we can to be storytellers through whatever um, conduits we feel comfortable with, be it for me, te- television, but it can be writing op-eds, it can be blogging, it can be so many different ways. And because by the time someone comes through the door, it's usually too late yeah. um, in terms of chronic disease. So we have to prevent it much earlier because we don't have very good success. Obviously, if 40% of Americans are obese mm. and one out of nine or one out of eight, eight or nine Angelinos has type two diabetes, mm-hmm. something's wrong mm-hmm. and it's not working. And you know, well, just keep trying to treat them with type with um, insulin, but we're not going to make an impact, um, and it's costing us a fortune. So we have to think now in terms of the story before they come through the door, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that medical schools don't like to do because you know they're always you know as I said worried about having to cover a lot of material. But I think the new pathways freeze you know at least Harvard from that because it's a it's a comprehensive approach to learning how to be a doctor because you can't know everything it's impossible what do you mean can't (laughs) just can't you know not not that you ever could but even I mean from 20 years ago to today the the breakthroughs have been profound so you have to learn how to learn and how to access and how to um, you know really treat you know, you know how to prevent. You know we have, um, you know, a, a, a culture where physicians see patients who are sick rather than when they're well, and 
I think we have to really focus on when people are well and keep them well. Yeah. Excellent points. Neil Bear, thank you so much for sharing some of your stories with us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook.